Amen. Well, good morning. We'll attempt to not trip over that microphone cord, and so make a fool of myself. Well, as Lance mentioned, I'm Josh. It's great to be with you. If you don't know me, uh, it might be because I'm typically minister over at the Killarn campus, if you don't know what that means. Uh, we are uh, a church that has two locations, two campuses, one in north, uh, northeast Tallahassee and one uh, here in Midtown. I'm typically uh, down there, and uh, every once in a while when I'm really good, uh, when I have enough gold stars on my pastoral chore chart. They let me come down here and hang out with you guys. And so that's a treat for me. And so thanks for, uh, for welcoming me and for uh, just for being a church that I just, I love you guys. I'm always jealous for these times uh, to spend with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we want to get to that work. If you have them, you can go to Acts chapter 4. Our text for this morning is going to be Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11. And if you've read ahead at all, you know it's getting ready to get kind of crazy. All right, the text is going to take us to some weird places, and uh, you know this makes me think. Uh, Lance, my good buddy, I love you, bro. Thanks for all the stuff that you said, and likewise, ditto all that. But Lance recently has made some comments about how every time he comes to the Kalarn campus where I minister, he gets stuck having to preach on hard topics, hard topics like lament and, and obedience. And we all feel so bad for you, Lance. That's so hard. And so, what do I discover? On the Sunday that I'm invited to fill the pulpit that he typically occupies here at Midtown, I have been assigned a text that deals with money and God striking people dead. So so thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. More on that in just a minute. Uh, If you have been tracking with our study of the book of Acts, you've seen that we have just been overwhelmed by the incredible work that God uh, has done in the early church by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the first four chapters, the church looks amazing. Just to recap for you what's happened, the Holy Spirit uh, descends upon uh, the people of God and fills them up after Jesus has resurrected and ascended. And the people of God begin to, uh, to preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see these incredible things are happening. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this, this small band of about 150 or so disciples uh, in a very short period of time has grown to some, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 people. It's incredible. This is just an incredible time in human history. You've got to think about this for a second. Since, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, atonement for sin is not just something that's promised in the future. It's here. It's Realized, God has provided a Savior to bridge the gap that existed between sinful men and a holy God. For the first time, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is alive and living inside of God's people. It's this beautiful picture of what God is forming in the early church. And of course, Satan is arrayed against it. He is excited to, uh, to try to take this work down. And so last Sunday we saw uh, in Acts chapter 4 that he brings opposition uh, from outside the church. The elders, the scribes, and the high priest pull in Peter and John and they say, what are you doing? By what name? By what power? Are you preaching these things? Why is this taking place? They charge them to stop preaching. They're causing a disturbance. They want them to stop. And Peter and John say, no way. 
We cannot help but speak of the things that we have seen and heard. And the last thing we saw from the disciples in chapter 4, verse 31, is them huddled together in a house praying in the midst of this opposition for God to grant them the gift of boldness. And literally, the entire house is shaking. God is so powerfully, so manifestly present with his people. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. And you read these accounts and you start to understand why people will say things from time to time. Like, we just got to get back to the early church, man. If we could just be like they were, if we could just do the things that they did, then, then man, everything would be solid. And that all works great until you get to chapter 5, right? We get to chapter 5 and we're confronted with the sin of God's people and God's swift and fierce judgment upon that sin. And it turns out when you, when you look a little bit closer, the church struggles today in the same way that it did back then. It struggles because it's full of sinful people. And that way the church is a little bit like, like marriage. The institution itself is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. The problem with it is that it's packed with sinners. And that makes it very difficult and very hard. And today, in a, in a profound and grievous way. The first instance of moral failure on the church, in the church, is going to be on display, and God is going to render his just judgment against that sin quickly, decisively, and dramatically. And before I read this text to you, before we consider it together, I want to just confess a couple of things and offer you one encouragement. First uh, thing I want to confess is that this is, this is a hard passage, and I have, I have a measure of fear and trembling, even as I consider the task of preaching this text and holding these things before you. And I want to I I encourage you as well. This, this text comes with a serrated edge. And what I want to encourage you to do is, just, is to allow it to cut you. Don't, don't move too quickly as we consider these things to, to explain it away or to theologize or, or to bring in other texts to help sort of soften the blow of what's going on. Let the weight of the Word of God land on you. This is a difficult word, guys, but it is a word that is written down for our instruction. And if we're going to see it, if we're going to be instructed by it, if we're going to come under it as God calls us to come under it, we're going to need His help. So I want to invite you, if you're willing and able, to stand with me out of reverence for the Holy God who speaks to us, who condescends to communicate Himself to us in his word. And let's read the scripture together and then we'll pray and ask for God's help to see it. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. This is the word of God. It is eternally true. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and all who had heard of these things. Let's pray. Our Father, surely the grass withers and the flower falls, but your word is not like the grass and the flower. It endures forever. What hand could hold the weight of your love and know the heights of your great worth? What eyes could look upon your glorious face shining like the sun? You are holy, holy, holy. And yet, you draw near to us to speak words of life and to hold out freedom, forgiveness of sin, access to you through Jesus Christ. You hold out your word to us to show us what we need. What's right, how you've created the world to work. What's wrong, our sin, how we've corrupted your good design. And what's needed, a Savior who will come and set things right. Father, we desperately desire to hear from you this morning. We desperately desire to come under the authority of your word. So open up our eyes, soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might glorify you, so that we might know you, so that we might have joy and fear through Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen. You guys can take your seats. This past August, my Katie's uh, grandfather died. And so uh, we hopped in our van and headed up to beautiful, scenic, metropolitan Arab, Alabama. I didn't mispronounce that. It's actually called Arab. If you say Arab, they'll correct you. It's a uh, charming, quaint little town uh, near Huntsville, and uh, that's where they lived. And so we, uh, we went up there to participate in his memorial service, and uh, Larry Dahl was 88 years old when he died. He had been married to... Uh, to his wife Rosie for 66 years and when we gathered there with uh, his extended family and friends and, and, and folks who knew him to remember and celebrate him, uh, we went to the viewing and 
Uh, I don't know if you've been to a memorial service lately, but I think this might be a new thing that, that, that funeral homes do. They create this sort of slideshow video montage of, of the person who, ha- who has passed away. The family will give them pictures and their, their graphics dude or whatever will we'll put it together. And these pictures that the family picked out to have uh, be a part of this, this, uh, this video montage helped to tell the story of who Larry Dahl was. So we saw pictures of him in uniform. He was a soldier. We saw a picture of him with his wife getting ready to leave for their honeymoon. He was a husband. We saw pictures of him with his children. He was a father with his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren. And we saw that Larry was a, a family man. Now, of course, these pictures also, this was kind of weird. They were interspersed with like, like videos of eagles flying over mountains. Have you seen this? It was really, I guess it's supposed to make me feel peaceful. It didn't make me feel peaceful. It made me feel angry. Um, we need to send Brian Zhang and, and Patrick to go uh, help those guys out. But uh, anyway, the, the weirdness of the eagles uh, did not obscure uh, the beauty of the story. And the family picked photos to really help represent the most significant aspects of who Larry was to help communicate his story. And I bring that up because the book of Acts is a little bit like that, okay? Luke is uh, the, the narrator of these events, and he is presenting to us a faithful narrative of historical events. It would have been impossible to record everything that the Holy Spirit was doing in the early church. And so Luke chose stories, he chose episodes, he chose windows into the church's life to help uh, build a comprehensive but not an exhaustive account of what the Holy Spirit did in the early church And I bring this up because it's important when we come to a text like this to ask the question, why this account? Why did did Luke include this section, Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11? And I think the answer, as I've thought about this week, thought about it this week, is this. Luke wants to help us understand something about the Holy Spirit's activity. The Holy Spirit doesn't merely save and shape individual Christians, although he does, and praise God for that. Isn't that so often how we think about the Holy Spirit's activity? No, the Holy Spirit does more than that. He also forms and shapes our shared life together in community. He makes claims upon our life together as a church. And this morning, I want us to just look at, in this text, two ways in which he does that. The Holy Spirit is... God's presence with his people, and his presence unifies and purifies God's people. That's our big idea today if you're taking notes. The Holy Spirit unifies and purifies God's people. When you preach on judgment, you really don't want the big loud noise. <laughs> just saying. If anyone wants to like take a second and just like repent of any sin, just go for it. God's presence unifies and purifies God's people. Our first point is God's presence unifies God's people. Let's just kind of walk through this together and see this portrait that Luke's painting of of what the fellowship of the believers was like. Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Something really beautiful that the Holy Spirit is doing here. There's this incredible unity and oneness and togetherness that's being formed in the early church. In the Greek, it actually reads this way. The believer's heart and soul were one. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit is, is unifying and uniting together the hearts of God's people. You see, so often we think about church 
in terms that are kind of foreign to the New Testament. We think of it as a place that we go to two times a week, maybe, two times a month, maybe three, if we're like feeling really spiritual and, and religious, and we get, we get our Jesus fixed, and then we go back to living our individual lives. That's not the picture of what the church was. The church was not a place that you go to. It was a place that you belonged to. It was a family that you were a part of. Many of you know this, uh, in the summer of 2013, uh, my wife Katie and I went to Africa and adopted two, two little kids, uh, a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I have a ton of stories from that that I could tell, but one of my favorite uh, stories about what God did in our family in that time was what we saw in our two biological kids as that process unfolded. Uh, we had two biological kids who were the same age as the kids that we adopted, and we sat down with them one day and said, guess what? Very exciting news. Mommy and Daddy are getting on an airplane. We're heading over to Africa. We're going to come back, and you're going to have a new brother and sister, and it's going to be amazing. And I was so proud of my little girls because from the moment we told them, you're going to have a new brother and sister, like they were all in. And from the second Eva and Titus got off the plane, Reagan and Charlotte just accepted them, welcomed them. They were a part of their family from day one. I was so proud of the way that they did that. And as I, I, was, as I think about that, that's what the church is to be like. We're supposed to be so ready to welcome people into our midst, to be, to be reconstituted together as a spiritual family. There is a sense in which we relate to one another as a faith family in the same way that your earthly family relates to one another. The Holy Spirit produces a a radical reorientation in our lives toward one another in unity. And the unity of the early church was was so strong because it was was based in the apostles' teaching. Verse 33 says, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So as the early church is walking in, in oneness together as they're sitting under the teaching of the apostles, as they're sharing their faith with zeal and enthusiasm, God is just pouring out and raining down His blessings upon His people. We see additionally in verse 34 that God's blessing raining down on His people is overflowing in generosity from His people. It says there was, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. They were willingly, joyfully selling land, selling possessions, giving of what was theirs for the greater good. Now this is, here's one note I want to say about this. This is not communism. Some people look at that and say, that's communism. This wasn't coercive. It wasn't government organized. It was Holy Spirit awakened in the lives of these people. Communism says, what's yours is mine, so give it to me. This isn't that. This is Christian generosity. And Christian generosity says, what's mine is yours, and I'm happy to share with anyone who has a need. And then we have a portrait of this kind of generosity in verse 36. And this guy, Barnabas, comes on the scene. He sells a field and he takes the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. And Barnabas, I want to talk just briefly about who Barnabas was because he's an important figure in the New Testament. His name wasn't Barnabas. His mama didn't name him Barnabas. His mama named him Joseph. 
But the early church was really excited about nicknames, right? Another reason to love the early church, they were all about some nicknames. They're like, like Florida State, the football team. We got some awesome nicknames. You guys know this? Bobo Wilson, Kermit Whitfield. If you go back like a few years, like Pooh Bear Williams, there's some great. It's all good stuff, man. Nicknames are very important. It was important to the early church. Should be to you as well. Not really. So they dub him Barnabas. Larry Osborne, who's a, who's a pastor, says Barnabas is such an interesting character because his name is almost nowhere, but his fingerprints are everywhere in the New Testament. Barnabas is a man of, of great faith. Barnabas is the first one in the leadership team in Jerusalem to embrace Paul after his conversion. And that makes sense, right? Because the apostles were terrified of Paul because as he was known as Saul back then, he was persecuting the church. He was locking up Christians. He was overseeing murder of Christians. He was, a, he was a terrorist in that day. And so he shows up one day at the doorstep of the church and says, guess what, guys? I'm in. Jesus saved me. And they're all like, they're terrified. And Barnum says, no, 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 no. It's true. Let me tell you about what God's been doing in his life. He vouches for the Apostle Paul. Barnabas was a man who understood and believed the gospel. He was on the leading edge of the church's welcome of the Gentiles in Acts 11. And as, as a Gentile, I'm so grateful for his ministry and helping bring that about. He traveled with the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey as well. Barnabas was also a very humble man. When you see uh, the accounts of Barnabas and and Paul in the early days of their ministry together. It's always Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was the primary leader he's mentioned first. But over time, Barnabas begins to see the gifting and the leadership and the anointing that God had on Paul's life. And so he willingly steps back and concedes the primary role to Paul. And it goes from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas is a generous man and he is put forward here as a lead giver, laying down his gifts at the apostles' feet. Barnabas for us, guys, is a picture of a man whose life has been transformed by the gospel. And that transformation has, has worked itself all the way down to his stuff. Jesus transformed Barnabas' life and peeled back his fingers from his stuff so that they could be freed to hold tightly to God's people. And this makes sense because when your identity is in Christ. You don't have to look for it in your stuff anymore. When your security is in Jesus Christ, you don't have to look for it in your possessions. God's presence is unifying God's people and that overflows in generosity. And this generosity was important, guys. It was mission critical because, again, as I mentioned, there was 20,000-some people in the church at this point that had all come together and stayed in Jerusalem. And there were great needs Imagine 20,000 people sort of descending on a city. Imagine the infrastructure problems that that presented. Generosity was needed. It's a little bit like if you invite my entire family of six to your house for dinner. Like resources are needed, right? We got two six-year-olds, two four-year-olds. You're going to need like two bags of frozen chicken nuggets. You're going to need like a bunch of toys. You're going to need a whip in a chair to get them back in the car uh, to get us out of there. Resources are needed because of the great... Need And those needs are met by a generous church. And we need to see here there's a, there's a connection between the generosity of God's people and the mission of God in the church going forward. 
Many of you joined us a few weeks ago for our family meeting where we gave you an update on where we are financially. And really, we made a call uh, to our church family to join us in living out Acts chapter 4. Uh, we just, if you weren't with us and you don't know what, we were, what I'm talking about, uh, what we told you is that uh, to meet the budget that the members uh, voted to approve for this fiscal year, we need to bring in about $35,000 a week. And for the fiscal year to date, we're only bringing in about 28000 and uh, that doesn't seem like a lot of money, but if you project that over 52 weeks, that's about 350 uh, or so as a round number, $1,000 uh, of a budget shortfall. And so the leaders pulled together, and uh, we made some hard decisions in terms of modifying our budget, cutting some programming, and eliminating some staff positions. Uh, some pay cuts were uh, distributed. And in that meeting, we really called the church and, and all of us to really uh, consider before the Lord how we might grow in generosity and give to fund the mission of the church. And some of you have been asking, you know, what, what's happened since then? Well, the last three Sundays, uh, we've brought in, the first week was $45,000, then $44,000, and then $28,000. So over those three weeks, we're averaging uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty nine, which is encouraging. And uh, we're, we're filled with faith for how God's going to meet uh, those needs. But one of the things that's happened since we communicated that need to the church that's so encouraging to us as your elders and pastors is the stories of generosity uh, that we've seen in the church. We've seen uh, people, men and women, giving over and above what they would typically give, uh, making room in their budgets to give more to support the church. We had uh, a person in the church sell a four-wheeler that they didn't need anymore and, uh, and give the proceeds of that sale to the church. There was another uh, man in the church. He's in the room right now. I won't tell you who he is because he'd probably try to tunnel his way out of here uh, with embarrassment if I told you his name. But uh, his company restructured and he ended up uh, getting a, uh, a lease, a corporate lease for a vehicle. And so he had a car that he owned outright. And he said, I want to give it to the church. I want to give this car to the church so that you can use it or sell it and, and use the proceeds to help, uh, to help fund the mission of the church. This is a guy who's got responsibilities, a house, a young family. Don't you think he could have used seven, eight, nine thousand dollars in his pocket? Of course he could have. But the Holy Spirit is at work creating a generous community. And we praise God for that. We're so encouraged by that. And while we're on that subject, let me make this appeal to you. If you're a member of Four Oaks, if this is your church family, you need to know this is not about us making our budget. This is about the ministry of the gospel going forward in people's lives. Understand, understand this, that in this passage, the sharing of people's resources freed up the apostles to minister. It allowed the church to stay on mission and to grow spiritually together. There's a lot of things that we would love to do as a church. This campus is burgeoning. We need space. We need staff. We need resources to fund the incredible work that's happening here. We have pastoral interns who we see a lot of fruit in their lives who we want to train and equip and give them books and give them, give them resources to grow in to, into a pastoral ministry role. We have church planting partnerships we want to cultivate so that we can be a church planting church. We desire to plant more campuses. We want to put a campus of Four Oaks in the east part of Tallahassee and the northwest part of Tallahassee. We want to be bold. And there's a connection between our boldness and the generosity of God's people. You see, for, for many of us, we, we're fearful 
And that's why we don't give. It's not about, it's not about being greedy. It's about, it's about being fearful. What, what will I do if I give? If, am I, if I'm obedient, is God going to be faithful to meet all of my needs? Well, those aren't new questions. The early church would have had to ask those same questions. But here's the thing that we see in this text. They believed. Barnabas believed that whatever it cost him to give up that track of land was nothing worth, it was nothing in comparison to the spiritual harvest and the eternal impact that would come from funding the mission of God in the church. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit transforms the people of God by his presence and unites their hearts in the gospel. We end and cut off our love affair with our stuff and we cling tightly to people. So just a question for you as you think about how to apply this. The early church was, was devoted by the Holy Spirit's power to unity and generosity and uniting around the Word of God. How is that working itself out in your life? Are you devoted to, to applying the Word of God, sitting under the Word of God through Sunday worship, through participation in your fellowship group, through generosity? And I just want to say this. If, that, if that's a struggle for you, if that's difficult, if you feel just kind of angst rising up in your heart as you think about this, I just want to encourage you to take that to the Lord. The answer is not just to do more stuff. Take that to the Lord. Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to write that truth on your heart, to make it a reality. I believe He'll be faithful to grant you that enthusiasm. God's presence unifies God's people. That's chapter 4. Now we turn to chapter 5. Chapter 4 is beautiful. In chapter 5, things go horribly wrong. Chapter 4 is FSU's football team. Chapter 5 is Florida's football team. (laughs) Going from chapter 4 to chapter 5 is a little bit like watching an episode of Extreme Home Makeover, like in reverse, right? It's a beautiful house. Somebody cries. Then a lot of work gets done to deconstruct it, and then there's nothing there. And you need to know this, too. Uh, Chapter 4 is connected to chapter 5. The verse and chapter divisions in your Bible weren't there in the original. Those were added later for uh, for ease of access and looking up references. And so we should read chapter 5, verse 1, as a continuation of the end of chapter 4. And we see this in the adversative that begins chapter 5, verse 1, the word but... Luke wants to contrast what he has just said about Barnabas with what he is about to say about Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Let's talk about what's happening here. The Holy Spirit has given Peter insight into what Ananias and Sapphira have been doing. They have, they have sold this property and they've brought a gift forward. And they're, what, they've, what they've done is they've said this is the full purchase price of the land. When in fact, they've kept back some of the purchase price for themselves. Notice as well, who is at work here? Satan. This is the first appearance of Satan since the cross. Verse 4, Peter continues, 
While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have, not, you have lied not to men, but to God. Now we need to understand this. Ananias and Sapphira have decided to sin. And what is the sin that they've committed? Is there sin that they didn't give it all? No. Peter says this explicitly. He says, the resource, the asset, it was yours. It was yours before you sold it, and the resources you got from selling it were yours even after you sold it. They didn't have to give all the money. They didn't have to give a single dime from the sale of this property. That is not their sin. Their sin is hypocrisy. Their sin is lying. Their sin is spiritual pride that led them to present this gift as though it were the full price in hopes of getting a good name. Their sin is pretending to be something that they weren't so that they could be recognized as spiritual. Notice, too, here how closely God identifies with his people. He says to lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. And what happens? Verse 5 And Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I like to think that these young men were the interns. I told you we have some interns. And uh, we guys, Brian, Tim, Ferg, if you're here, we ask you to do some hard stuff, but come on. Could be worse. Could be worse. And Sapphira comes in three hours later and the same thing happens to her. And the young men, fresh off of pouring dirt on Ananias, take and bury her as well. What does God, what does God want us to see from this account? I believe it's this. Hypocrisy is deadly. Ananias and Sapphira saw Barnabas and they saw the recognition that he got for the gift that he gave, and they coveted, they coveted that praise. They said, I want a cool nickname. I want to be seen as generous and godly and willing to share. They wanted the recognition that Barnabas got, not the heart that Barnabas had that produced the generosity. Do you see the difference? So they pretended, so they walked in hypocrisy. Now, I need to say this. We need to be careful about what we mean when we say the word hypocrisy. Culturally, for us, hypocrisy has come to mean not practicing what you preach. And that's, that's not really a healthy or, or, or good or the, or the best definition of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is pretending to practice what you preach. Do you understand the difference? Hypocrisy involves lying. It's, it's feigned goodness. It's pretend Righteousness, And so if I, if I say to you that you should not get angry with your kids, you should not be sinfully angry with your kids, but then I also admit to you that I struggle at times with becoming sinfully angry with my kids. There's four of them, two six-year-olds, two four-year-olds. Not an excuse, but I occasionally get angry with my kids, and I am asking for grace to grow in this area. It's something I'm repenting of, and I'm asking the Lord's grace to meet me in that. Is that hypocrisy when I get angry at them? No. But if I say to you, you need to be like me and not get angry with your kids, that is hypocrisy. 
I want to make a bold statement to you. Hypocrisy, I believe, is the most deadly and insidious sin in the church. It is the sin that keeps more church folk out of heaven than any other sin. You might say, well, what about like false teaching or adultery or embezzlement? Those things are all grievous to be sure, but those are most of those sins tend to come out in public, don't they? The church tends to deal with false teaching. God gives us elders and pastors to hear it, to sift it, and to refute it. Adultery has a way of coming to the surface. Embezzlement has a way of being discovered. Hypocrisy is, is dangerous because it's not like that. It's an inner condition of the heart that's difficult to discern from the outside. Additionally, hypocrisy, I believe, is, is the most deadly and insidious sin in the church because it is fundamentally a rejection of the basis of our faith. It is a denial of the gospel. You see, we need to understand this. We are saved by righteousness. We are saved by works, aren't we? Aren't we? Are we? I don't know. Seems like a trick question. We are saved by righteousness. We are saved by works, but we're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by the righteousness and the good works of Jesus Christ credited to our account. We must come to God for the forgiveness of sins, but we must come to Him also so that we can receive a righteousness that comes from outside of us. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's credited to us by faith. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Our righteousness can never be enough to save us. That's why we needed a Savior who did live the perfect life. That is why we need His righteousness. And here's what hypocrisy does, guys. It takes the gift of God, of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, and says, no, thank you. I've got this enough on my own. This free gift is offered to us, but in our sin we reject the idea of free grace because we just don't think we're all that bad. We think we're awesome, and so we posture. This is the man who sits in church every Sunday with his arm around his wife taking notes, knowing full well that on Monday morning he's going to go back into his office and pick up right where he left off in the flirtatious relationship with that woman that he works with because it makes him feel good about himself. This is the young man who goes to his campus ministry every week, leads his discipleship group every week, and then spends his evenings giving himself to internet pornography and sin. But you know what? It's not just things like that. There's more subtle versions of hypocrisy that are just as deadly, that are just as dangerous. It's also the person who says, I would never flirt with that woman in my office. I would never give myself to pornography in that way. Hypocrisy is a boasting in your own goodness and presenting yourself as though you had a sufficient righteousness on your own. 
Most commonly, this just looks like trying to earn it. Trying to present yourself as good enough. You think you're better than other people because you don't do the things that they do. You're not weak in those ways that they're weak, so you're okay. Who is Jesus in his ministry constantly berating for their hypocrisy? The Pharisees, right? Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is what? Hypocrisy. Leaven is the, it's the yeast that you put into the dough and it starts off very small. You need a tiny little bit and it gets activated and soon it permeates the entire lump. It grows like crazy and it gets into everything. And Jesus says, beware of this hypocrisy because it starts small. You start by convincing yourself of a small lie, that you really aren't that bad, that you really have come, you've made such progress Aren't you awesome? You've made so much progress in your faith. You've memorized so many verses. You're doing so much better in that area where you used to struggle. And before too long, we we start to believe that we actually belong on God's varsity squad. And we start to seek to impress people with how spiritual we are and all the things that we know. And before you know it, we are neck deep in self-deception and self-congratulation, not realizing what a perilous place we're in. We become the Pharisee that Jesus described in Luke chapter 18 who stood up in the temple and prayed out loud, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Jesus contrasts this man with the tax collector who stood far off and would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You probably know the end of the story. What did Jesus say? I tell you, this tax collector went down to his house justified, declared righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's not miss this. The one who gets saved is the one who comes with none of his own self-righteousness to present before God. Who has dropped the pretense, who has repented of his hypocrisy. Guys, you've got to understand, hypocrisy is revolting to God because it is a high-handed rejection of Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy doesn't just kill our vertical relationships, it kills our horizontal relationships as well. Hypocrisy is a sin against the unity of the church. If we had more time, we'd get into that some more. Hypocrisy also kills the mission of the church. It is so easily sniffed out by non-Christians. Have you ever noticed this? I was talking to a guy just a couple weeks ago. His name's Tony. You can pray for him. He asked me what I did. I told him I was a pastor, and that's like the easiest on-ramp ever into a, a conversation about Jesus and told him where I went to church and asked him if he goes to church, if he has a relationship with Jesus. And he says, yeah, I went to a church for a while and he named a church in town. And I said, well, why don't you go anymore? He said, it just became too much for me that these people said they believed one thing and they lived a completely different life. Ananias and Sapphira's sin is that they fail at the end of the day to take sin and the holiness of God Seriously, and they actually think they can pull the wool over God's eyes. They think He won't see. They think He will not find out what they've done and that they won't be exposed. <laughs> I had a friend, uh, this was probably like fifth grade community Christian school here in town, Christian school. 
it was time for class pictures. And we were going to take a big group photo. And this kid, his name was Ryan. He was kind of the hard-edged kid. Had a little bit of a rebellious streak in him. He decided in his, uh, you know, fifth grade wisdom that he was going to make a one-fingered salute uh, surreptitiously in the picture. And uh, so he did it, man. Like, he just went for it. He told us he was going to do it. He called his shot like Babe Ruth, and he just did it. And so for like nine days, he was like, yeah, man, I did it. I dropped it, man. I dropped it. I did it. And we were all like, man, I can't believe he did it. And he was feeling really good about himself until what happened? <laughs> until those pictures got developed. And he was discovered. And weirdly enough, we didn't see him for like two weeks after that happened. <laughs> God sees, guys, you got to know this. God knows. Don't think for a second that you'll get away with your sin and with your hypocrisy. God acts swiftly and decisively for the sake of his holiness and for the sake of the purity of his church. And he puts Ananias and Sapphira to death. And, and if we're honest, we, we would, many of us would say we're offended by the notion that God would behave in this way. Can we just say that? If that's your reaction, if you're tempted to go there when you read this passage, I just want to submit to you that that's probably more culturally conditioned of a response than it is a biblical one. The God of the Bible is a consuming fire. He is holy. We sang about it this morning. He is separate. His eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He cannot tolerate sin. And nowhere in the Bible does God abrogate his authority to act in judgment and to end life and to judge sin. God is a holy God who will not tolerate sin against himself. And Ananias and Sapphira sin against God's holiness, against the church's unity, and so God acts to bring discipline. And the question that gnaws at us as we think about this text is this. Why Ananias and Sapphira and not other people? I want to say this. When you read in the Bible about healings that take place, Healings are a sign of what's coming. We need to understand this. You guys know part of the promise of God is that everyone who is in Christ will one day be healed of all of their infirmities. All of our diseases will be taken away one day in the presence of Jesus Christ. You understand that, right? That's good news to hope for. And there are moments when God reaches down like a ray of light breaking in through cloud covering, and he gives us a sign, a foretaste that that's coming. That's what miraculous healings are. They're not eternal. They don't last forever. They're a a foretaste of what's coming. Well, in the same way, the judgment of God on Ananias and Sapphira is a sign of what will happen to all of those who seek to lie to the Holy Spirit. This is the just judgment and holiness of God against sin. And so at the end of the day, the question that we should ask is not why did God do it to them? The question for us should be why didn't God do it to us? I heard R.C. Sproul, who has been a notable and public theologian for decades, say, I've been asked every theological question you could ever imagine except this one. No one's ever asked me this before. Why did God save me? The temptation for us is to think that God owes us, that we couldn't even conceive of heaven without us. 
God is holy. And so what should we do? It says that as a result of this activity from God, great fear came upon the church and all who heard of it. Well, I would, I would think so. Here's what we should do, church. Fear God. Flee the wrath to come by flying to Jesus Christ, by repenting of our self-righteousness, by repenting of our hypocrisy and our posturing and our trying to look like we have it all together in front of other people and pleading His righteousness credited to our account. My great concern for us in our church as a sort of a, a we're firmly steeped in southern fried Christian culture is that we would that we would put on the mask. That we would hang around long enough to learn the language, learn the jargon, that we would say things like, Man, I'm just trying to desire Jesus, right? You hang around long enough, you'll pick up this language. I'm just trying to preach the gospel to myself without really doing business with the holy God of the universe and really coming to Jesus repenting of our unrighteousness and receiving His. So my question to you today is, do you fear God? Are you walking in the confession of sin? The opposite of hypocrisy, lying about what's true, is acknowledging what's true. It's confession. The opposite of hypocrisy is confession. Are you confessing your sin to God and to other believers for forgiveness and for healing? Are there people who know you, who have the green light to speak into your situation? Confess your sin and know this as well. There's nothing you could reveal about yourself that wasn't already said at the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus has already unmasked you as a sinner because he knew you didn't have sufficient righteousness to save you. God is holy and just, yet He is full of mercy and grace for all who will call upon the name of Jesus. And His mercy and His grace is held out to us this morning in the Lord's table. Don't come to this table as a hypocrite. Don't come trusting in your righteousness. Don't come posturing.